This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Welcome to another episode of This. And uh, Blake Murphy joins me again. And we're going to talk about free agents this time around because the man has gone into a rabbit hole and come up with some sort of list which is categorized into three different categories. Um, you know, you know when you read an article and like it's a long ass article, but there's like bolded sections. That's how you read Blake's article on the first run, the bolded sections, and then you dive in to which one you are, you are interested in. So you classified Raptors possible targets into three categories of veteran, uh, unrestricted free agents, possible RFA targets, and then bargain deals. So let's make a couple of assumptions because a lot of things in the air. Uh, let's assume that uh, Ibaka is back, Gasol is gone, uh, and the rest of the roster is more or less the same. Let's assume that Powell stays for now. Okay. If you make those simplifying assumptions, where do you see the Raptors kind of focusing their attention on within these three categories? Like what's, what, what, what are they thinking? Yeah, it, it kind of varies by, um, by position a little bit too. And obviously that's dependent on what happens with, like you said, Ibaka and Gasol, what happens with Fred Van Vliet, what happens in any trade scenarios. So obviously, you know, there are a few dominoes that fall before you get to that part of the free agent um, market and, and what you're looking to do there. Um, so the reason that it's, I've kind of subcategorized it by position and then by, um, free agent type is one because the Raptors cap flexibility could be a little different depending on, you know, say Abaka and Van Vliet are both back, you know, they might, depending on what they do with the salary cap, they could be tight to the tax and they might not want to spend a ton. Uh, the other thing is if all of those guys were to leave, well, suddenly you have a little bit more flexibility, but you're still keeping 2021 in mind. So anyone who fell into those like veteran UFA targets category I'm not super excited about. I put them there because they're names that people will ask me about. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to get me excited about the Raptors adding a Kent Bazemore type. Like you're just no disrespect to Kent Bazemore. It's just, if they have to go out and sign someone, uh, you know, I'd rather them be focused on guys who might develop into something that'll help them in the next contention window. Um, you know, you got to plug holes this year, but I don't think other than that center position, I don't think they're going to be, you know, super thin, in the backcourt and when you have OG Ananobi and Pascal Siakam as your basis for forwards, you know, there are only so many minutes to go around there. So that's kind of the logic of breaking it into subsections like that. Um, and yes, the bolded subheadings, those pieces are intended to be like bookmarked and come back to later. Not, uh, not all sit in, in one sitting. So uh, I'm glad you, you handled it that way. I was surprised that Kent Bazemore made it because the guy had like one season, uh, I think maybe at least one that I remember um, one real strong outlier three-point shooting season, right? And otherwise, he's just been a guy and like defensive metrics kind of like him and, and he seems like a high character guy. Um, I've enjoyed talking to him when he's been in Toronto in the past and, and things like that. But yeah, it's it, it's honestly part of the reason I included some of those veteran UFA targets too in each position was just like, I wanted to highlight how bad the free agent market is. So if you see something like Fred Van Vliet ending up getting $25 million, yeah. You know, there's a reason it's that there's no free agents out there. 
Yeah. And, and the other guy that has been part of pretty much every trade machine transaction Raptor fans have made is, is Bogdanovich. And, yeah. and he snuck in there in the uh, restricted free agent category. And like, can the Raptors sign an RFA at like 18, 20 million and retain Fred? Like, is, is that even a possibility? No, it, it's going to be one or the other. So, so the issue with um, signing another team's RFA is that as we discussed kind of in the OG and Fred Van Vliet editions of this, uh, you know, you can always, in most cases, not always, exceed the cap to re-sign your own guys. So the Raptors, if they want to give Serge Ibaka $12 million on a one-year deal and they want to give Fred Van Vliet four years, $80 million, it doesn't really matter where the Raptors are in the salary cap or the luxury tax. Mm-hmm. That's their choice to do because those are their guys and they hold what are called bird rights on them. If you're going after another team's player, though, you need to have either cap space or exceptions. So even in a scenario where, say, Gasol, Ibaka, Boucher, Rondé, Van Vliet are all like, we're out. Like, we're not coming back. The Raptors lose all those guys. You're still only looking at, like, low 20s in terms of cap space. So what the Raptors are probably looking at, if we assume even one of those guys is back on a reasonable salary, the Raptors likely have what's known as the mid-level exception to spend. Based on our current estimates, that starts around nine and a half to 10 million for year one. You can go four years on that. So you can get to like a 442 type of framework. Uh, the issue is, you know, well, first of all, you might want to break that up across multiple players. That's what the Raptors did last year. That's how they got Rondé Hollis Jefferson. That's how they were able to add 30 years onto minimum contracts for Dewan and Matt Thomas. Um, so there's some flexibility you give up there if you lose the whole thing. But also, when we're talking about RFAs, a guy like Bogdanovich, if you're looking at point guards, a guy like Chris Dunn, if you're looking at pretty much any interesting center, but particularly the one I get asked about the most, Jakob Pertl, our old friend, um, you know, if the Raptors can only go to that, say, four-year, $42 million estimate, well, the team that holds RFA rights on those guys are probably going to match, right? Like, it's mm. imagine the scenario where OG Ananobi is a restricted free agent next summer, or, or even Terrence Davis and another team is like, well, we'll give your guy 442. The Raptors would match that deal in an instant. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are always things you can work out, like sign and trades, or you can deal a guy to clear more cap space or whatever. But mo- in most scenarios, the Raptors are looking at nine to 10 million uh, to spend on someone else's free agent. And if a guy has that RFA tag, you know, a team's probably going to match that, at least for the guys you'd want to spend it on. If you want to throw nine or 10 million, at a bad RFA, yeah, they won't match. But, um, you know, if you're looking at a Bogdanovich, at a Pirtle, at a Chris Dunn, those deals probably get matched. Yeah, well, th- that kind of constrains the Raptors significantly, right? Because if mm-hmm. they, if, if they, they, they'll realistically probably sign Fred back to whatever deal it is, which leaves them with $10 million to spend. And now that $10 million can only go against, as you said, people, players who aren't good RFAs, but are sort of in that category that you call bargain UFA targets. And looking at the bargain uh, UFA targets, Jesus Christ, man, I don't know if you can mount a title challenge with uh, Pat uh, and Josh Jackson there. Uh, yeah, is that Pat, really Pat what Jonathan, it is? Josh Jackson, Jamario Jones, those aren't doing it for you? I mean, they're not, they're not getting me excited. They're not, they're not, they're yeah, so, so this is the thing. And like the Raptors were in a similar situation last year. And I think last year was harder for people to understand, right? Because it's like, oh, they lost Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green. 
what can they spend that cap space on? But because the Raptors were coming from being a team so deep into the tax, they didn't actually have any cap space. And it's a similar thing this year where, um, you know, one of the bigger hurdles is all is obviously, as we've discussed, they want to keep 2021 flexibility open, but they also still have Lowry signed for one more year and 31 million. Pascal Siakam's max extension kicks in for this coming season. Norman Powell's still on the books for eight figures. So once you add those things up, you know, it's, especially with the cap being flatter than, than we maybe expected, you know, you don't, it's not a, it's not a sexy free agent time for the Raptors. And this is something that, you know, it's come up a couple times over the, over the years, I think it was 2015 um, where 2015 was the last time they had cap space. That was the Damari Carroll, Bismack, Corey Joseph summer. Um, And I think 2016 was like the frustrating year where it was like, okay, they need to add, who can they get? Who can they get? And it's like, well, I don't have any cap space. So given all the constraints that are imposed on the Raptors and given that they're sort of waiting on 2021 Giannis, it more and more feels like that next year is more of a bridge year. Like it it really has that feeling that, you know, we're not able to make that push in free agency to, to get over that hump. We're not able to maybe make big trades because we want to retain people to play with Giannis if we get that far. By the way, I do realize how stupid I sound assuming that I'm going to get Giannis. Uh, but uh, making those assumptions, it, it, it does get that feeling that we, we're really looking at a year which is more developmental and just waiting for kind of things to pass. Yeah, and it's, you know, I know that that's not always the most exciting and especially doing it two years in a row where, you know, obviously 20, 2019 ended up being a better run it back year than a lot of people anticipated for the Raptors. But when we set up our scenarios after the championship and it was like, what does the future look like if Kawhi Leonard leaves? Well, there was always kind of a two-year transition. And that transition is to, um, you know, let some of the contracts for your vets play out, get lots of experience for your Fred, Pascal, OG, Terrence Davis types, um, you know, and then look ahead to the next time either a marquee free agent is free or a marquee star becomes available in trade. So, you know, it does, it is a little dull to have a, a kind of second run, like a run it back part two, where maybe the ceiling's even lower. Um, but, you know, it, it's part of the process of keeping yourself, um, you know, sustaining this level of competition where you don't have to tank it and you can keep yourself in a position where you always feel you're close-ish if the next Kawhi type or Giannis type hits the market. And I don't think, I don't think that makes the free agent hunt completely without interest. Like I said, Bismack Biombo, Rondé Hollis, Jefferson, Terrence Davis, like you can find guys like this. And I think, you know, Harry Giles is a guy that I know I'm high on. And I know Raptors Twitter is really high on. He's a guy that the Kings messed up by not picking up his fourth year option. So the Kings actually aren't in a situation, aren't in one of those RFA situations we talked about before where they can match. The Kings can only go to like one year and 4 million for Harry Giles. So maybe another rebuilding team outbids you, but maybe Harry Giles looks at what you've done with some other developmental bigs, what the, what you've done with some other low contract guys, and you can get a guy like that on a team friendly, you know, maybe a one year with a team option or, or maybe a two year with a, a lower guarantee for 2021. There are guys like that. And, and, you know, the Raptors have been pretty good at finding them. The, the tough part is finding them before they get expensive. And then you're not chasing Christian Wood with 10 or 12 million instead of, developing the next Christian Wood. Um, so there are still guys of interest. I mentioned Chris Dunn earlier. He's kind of my point guard guy. I don't think the Raptors can afford him, but I, I think he's got another level to unlock. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the wings. 
Pat Connaughton, you know, you he needs to to turn that three point shot into a weapon, but he's a serviceable wing who's probably going to be cheap. Um, you know, Josh Jackson showed some real growth with the Memphis Hustle, the G League this year. Jamario Jones is a, is a G League wing who kind of fits what the Raptors do. And then I mentioned Giles, and Giles is kind of the guy that I've centered in on of like, okay, the Raptors need a center. This guy has a pedigree. Uh, he fits some of what the Raptors want to do on both ends. And the Raptors are in a year where, hey, you can maybe throw 15, 18, 20 minutes at a guy like that see what he's got at low risk. And then if it works out, you know, maybe you have a piece for your next window and, and you know, those, those don't hit super often, but if they do, they tend to return a ton of value and, and the Raptors don't really have much choice anyway, but to try to find guys like that this year. So let's go with the theme of the bridge year. Uh, Cause I like that. I, I, I like setting expectations low and then overachieving them. It's, 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 uh, it's how I That's roll. That's the Raptors way, man. Nine straight years of beating the Vegas win over unders. <laughs> Let me ask you about this, uh, P- Paul Watson Jr. Yeah. Uh, and given that, you know, next year, l- let's call it a bridge year. And we, as you said, maybe have time available to throw at some players. Uh, you know, we, we threw some time at Chris Boucher this year in spots. Is, is he somebody that you can see kind of entering the rotation? Or are you looking at mostly him as, a, as another year in the, in the G? Yeah, I mean, we don't even know if there will be a G League, but um, I would say he's a little of both. Like, if you look at the path, some of their G League guys – have taken, you know, Fred and Pascal are kind of the exception where you only go down there for a little bit and then you're on the, you're in the rotation, you know, guys more like Boucher, Malcolm Miller, O'Shea Brissett have kind of come up and contributed for a bit, gone back down to work on stuff and and back and forth. So um, I don't want to set expectations too high for a guy who's still developing. He took great strides this year. I think he's an NBA caliber um, rotation wing that might be a bench rotation wing, you know, we'll see, but he has, a pretty good defensive floor across a couple positions. He can knock down the three at decent volume and he's pretty good at creating his own shot, you know, straight line drives against a closeout or even some one-on-one play. He needs to add more to that package where he has, you know, more counters or he can make the next pass. He does get a little bit of tunnel vision on those plays, but in terms of a guy with 18 minutes or, or 85 minutes or whatever it is of NBA experience, he looked pretty good in the bubble games. He had a great G league season, um, you should bring Kelsey on our, our Raptors 905 correspondent at Raptors Republic because she ha- was in on Paul Watson even earlier than I was and can tell you a ton about his game. But I think, you know, you look, Malcolm Miller is going to be gone. O'Shea Brissett's probably back, but he's a free agent. Um, you know, there are the, the Raptors probably project to play a little smaller, which maybe opens up so, some wing minutes. So there are paths for a guy like Watson or a guy like Brissett um, to carve out a role. I'd still bet on him seeing 905 time just because these guys need more reps than you know that eight to ten minute a game window kind of presents but but he's a guy I think um I think he showed a lot this year and uh, that's the kind of guy that again he's not you know he wasn't a free agent signing in the kind of he was not in my bargain bin for the year before because actually to that point he had been like a pretty mediocre g-leaguer um, and then things started to click when he got in the Raptor system and connected with Rico Hines in the Um, So, you know, there are just, this is just to say there are going to be guys like that, that the Raptors can try to find and develop. And Watson's a great example of kind of taking a, a longer term focus as you fill out the roster in a bridge year like this. What's the deal with the G League? Uh, likelihood of happening, not happening? What, what What's preventing it from happening? Well, the, the COVID-19, I'm not sure if you've heard of this. Well, I never leave my house, so it makes no difference to me. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's something that 
depending on who you talk to, there are like wide, there's a wide range of feeling as to whether the G league actually happens or not. And, you know, whether it's a bubble G league in Vegas, like they do for the G league showcase or whether, you know, some franchises opt out for cost savings. We don't really know. We know that the Raptors will be one of the teams advocating for the G league to exist in some form because they do get so much value out of it. But like, it wouldn't surprise me if, if, you know, enough owners are like, this isn't the year for the G league. Um, or if, you know, 12 owners are like, Hey, we still want the G league. We'll do a G league bubble somewhere. And if you don't want in, okay, don't spend the money, but we're going to have these development guys. And I think in some form it'll probably exist because the NBA invested in that G league ignite program for some of the top prospects Mm -hmm. um, to go through the G league instead of through the college path. We just don't have a great idea what specifically it's going to look like yet. You mentioned uh, they might cut it to save money. Does the G League is it a does it make money that you would want it or how what's what's the financials behind it if you're aware of it? Um, they're not. They don't um, make that stuff completely public. I would guess that it operates at a loss, and teams you know chalk that up to you know, when you get four years of Fred Van Vliet that you've only paid $20 million in salary for, you know, your cost kind of goes into that. That's kind of baked into your cost or Pascal Siakam or whatever. Um, You know, the the, the 905 are generally top 10 in attendance and they average about 3,500 per game. Mm -hmm. Um, But you look at things like, you know, you got to get hotels for these guys. You got to bus and fly them around and the schedule is a little shorter and stuff. It's all about kind of the return that you can get at the NBA level. You, you have to look at it as investment. Um, you know, I, I think that there might be some teams that legitimately bow out if that's an option. Robert Sarver and the Suns have already sold their G League team to another franchise. So mm-hmm. it's, not, uh, it's not completely unheard of. And we're already starting to see things like that. Tillman Fertitta is definitely going to opt out of having the Rio Grande Valley Vipers if, if it saves them a buck. So, yeah. um, so we'll see. We just don't know. All right. So um, a couple more questions. So, man, again, I, I feel such an, such an idiot talking about Giannis. But what is plan B if we don't get him? Yeah, so I think plan B is, you know, I guess there are two plan Bs. Well, we'll say there's plan B number one, which is Giannis signs his Supermax extension with Milwaukee this offseason, and you know a year ahead of time that you're not getting him. Now, you Milwaukee could trade him after a year, but let's be honest. If he signs a Supermax, you're not keeping your cap space open for the potential for a trade. Like, you're just – you're operating differently. So I think plan B1 is that Giannis signs it early – and you still operate with flexibility in mind, but you're certainly more open to trades, whether that's, you know, hey, Indiana is rumored to be shopping Victor Oladipo. Washington has been rumored to maybe be open to Bradley Beal deals in the past. There are rumblings that, you know, Philly only has a certain amount of patience left for the Simmons Embiid core, and maybe maybe Embiid hits the market or something like that. And none of that stuff seems imminent, but a Kawhi Leonard trade didn't seem very imminent either. And this is the way the NBA goes. And I think there are some uh, unforeseen consequences of the pandemic and the way that's going to affect roster building and budgets and things like that, that we just can't see play out yet. So I think if Giannis signs a Supermax extension, uh, you operate still with 2021 in mind, but you're more open to things that add 2021 salary while opening your 2021 window. I'm not saying a Van Vliet, Oladipo, Ananobi, Siakam core is a title favorite, but if you're not getting Giannis, 
the bird rights to re-sign Oladipo and a year of him in the system is maybe more attractive than swinging at that second tier of free agents. Um, plan B number two would be that there are a lot of free agents on the market in 2021. And at that point, you'll have more information about what guys like Van Vliet, Ananobi, Davis, Siakam look like in larger roles. You maybe re-sign Kyle Lowry to kind of a, a veteran deal at that point and shop for that second tier of free agents, which is pretty deep, um, but you know certainly not as sexy as Giannis. So those are probably the two, the two uh, fallouts. I don't really see a scenario in where like they strike out on Giannis and tank just because Pascal Siakam and Fred VanVleet will be 27 at that point. And, you know, this, this front office has operated such that they clearly value, you know, the winning environment and the winning culture as part of their pitch to guys. Has tanking ever worked? Is, is there other examples where tanking actually resulted in you picking up the right guy or even the right free agent in draft and then voila, uh, here it is. It paid off. I mean, look, it, not maybe not directly, but we do know that the top 10 or 12 superstars in the league have a disproportionate impact on your championship chances. There's been, there've been a number of studies that look at that and superstar play is by far the most determinant, most, the largest determinant of um, championship potential. So following that thread, you know, tanking is a way to get high picks and high picks are your best path to getting superstar talent. But we're talking about pretty low probabilities. If you're the worst team in the league, you got a 14% chance at the number one pick. Then you've got to hope you pick the right guy. Then you've got to hope it's a draft year where you're not getting Andrea Bargnani. Um, you know, you, a lot has to line up. Um, you know, I, I see the logic more in a 76er style long-term teardown where you just get so many tries at it that you're going to get some good pieces. Um, but I also think that that, you know, only plays well in certain markets and, and there's still just a ton of risk. Like probabilistically you're, pro you're maybe just as well off, you know, I know people hate the term treadmill and there was this worry that the Raptors were stuck on a treadmill pre Kawhi and they might've been pre Kawhi, but being good keeps you a lot closer to being great than being really bad and having to take yeah. all those jumps. Like if you're tanking, the goal is get back to 2016 Raptors. And then the goal from there is to get to the next level. So tanking can work if you're a team like Cleveland that gets a couple high picks, um, gets some draft luck lottery, draft lottery luck, and has the best player in the NBA from a suburb of your city. Uh, short of Jamal Murray or Shea or Wiggins or, uh, you know, RJ or someone like that uh, becoming the best player in the NBA and really wanting to play in Toronto, you know, the, the Raptors probably don't have all of that lining up for them at once in a tank scenario. Yeah, I just find that tanking as a strategy for a particular season is just, I think we've tried that and, and, it, and it doesn't really uh, work. Yeah, it's, you tried that and you got Terrence Ross. Yeah, there you go. It's like, that's, that's the, or Andrea Bargnani. Like that wasn't a, a straight tank. That was more of just a war bad season. But those are the kind of outcomes you can end up with. And, you know, I get it. I, I get that, that people don't like, you know, especially that time when the Raptors were getting a, a couple first round exits or a couple sweeps mixed in uh with their kind of you know it wasn't a straight rise it was a rise and then fall and then rise and then fall um but you know it's i don't think it's a bad idea as you're developing guys to have them in winning environments to get the playoff experience and things like that you know if things got really dire sure you can you know there's if you were a first round exit like the detroit pistons could tank and i would understand it but if you're a second round third round playoff team 
every year with, and you feel like you're close to being, you know, or, or have a reasonable path to being the best team in your conference, then it doesn't make much sense. You know, the Pistons should probably tank though, right. uh, but the Raptors aren't the Pistons. Is there a guy that like, who's going to make the biggest jump for the Raptors next year in your opinion? Uh, because I'll tell you who I want to want to be that guy. I want it to be Siakam. Like I, as many jumps as he has made, I would love to see him take that to whole new level and like kill his critics once and for all. But in your view, is there one guy that that is percentage wise the most likely to make the biggest jump? Yeah, I think it's OG. I think you know Siakam. What the next jump looks like for Siakam isn't going to be dramatic statistically I don't think now it'll be it could be dramatic in terms of what does the Raptors ceiling look like like if he's kicking it at a 28% usage which is star level usage and suddenly he gets back to being as efficient as he was before then the Raptors offense especially in the half court looks really different and it's really exciting but if you look at where guys are now and how much room they have to grow uh, my get my bet is OG Um, I think he showed flashes of the skill growth both before the pandemic and especially in the bubble and no you don't want to take you know the one mid-range pick and roll jumper he took and the one time he broke a guy down off the dribble in isolation like you don't want to go too far off of those but those are skills and when you once you demonstrate a skill you know it's not quite the extent of, of baseball analytics where the the old axiom that once you display a skill you own a skill you know, basketball kind of requires you to show it on much larger volume because defenses can adjust to you. Uh, But I think there's enough skill wise there to, to look at the offensive role OG Ananobi's played the last three years, which is a really small offensive role. We're talking like a little bit more usage than a PJ Tucker, a little bit less than a Robert Covington. Like that's the kind of tier that OG has operated in. And when you see a guy with his youth and with some of the skill he's shown, I just, I see a path to him being a bigger contributor and I don't mean you know I don't think he's going to be the third option but I think if that 14% usage rate looks more like 17% usage and you can use him as a screener and you can let him attack a closeout and make a pass and things like that you know I I think you can just use OG in more ways than standing in the corner and through that lens he has some runway uh, to really improve the other person I think would be Terrence Davis just because I think he's already pretty good and I think there's just going to be more role for him next year. Um, And and that's, that might just come down to like minutes per game and being a little more comfortable on the defensive end. Okay. Finally, what's that, what's the one stat that you find overused and not really indicative of much, but but what people tend to rely on a lot Uh, points per game points per game. Yeah. I mean, look, points per game are game. Points per they game. They hand are, out awards based on points per game. I know, but what I'm saying is, is you know, it's uh, it can be a little bit reductive. Like, like I think basketball is such a dynamic and fluid sport that it's really hard for all of us to keep an eye on ten players at once and everything that's going on. And our eyes kind of naturally float to the ball and float to the way plays finish. And I think that you know, points per game. I, I'm being a little bit facetious here. But points per game um, tell you, you know, how a lot of plays finish. But they only tell you that on one end of the floor. And they don't tell you, it doesn't tell you, you know, a lot about the efficiency underneath it. Or, you know, Kyle Lowry has never been the leading scorer on the Raptors. But that doesn't mean he doesn't drive the offense for the Raptors, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think there are a group of people who rely on that too much and don't look past that. Um, In reality, I would like, like to be less facetious. I would like everyone to just 
bury PER. I think there are stats that have surpassed it. Like I think um, Pi, which is a, an NBA.com stat, that does a better job of doing what PER tries to do. And then I think there are enough box score based metrics that like adjust for luck and adjust for a lot of different things um, that, you know, the fact that PER was kind of the first advanced stat on a main site um, and Hollinger is obviously the man, but uh, yeah, that's the one I think we can probably leave behind at this point. I have a theory and I, and I, and I meant to sit down and pull out an Excel file and actually do this, but I find there's a lot of stats that are uh, proxies for each other. Um, so basically, like I'll give you an example of true shooting percentage and point uh, and uh, field goal percentage. So right. people look at true sh- shooting percentage a lot, but I think the covariance between the two stats is actually very positive. So when one increases, the other increases as well. So if you want to, so whatever judgments you make out of true shooting percentage, you can probably just make as as realistically just by looking at field goal percentage because when one rises, the other does too. I mean, that's that's true to an extent, but the issue you're going to run into is that field goal percentage doesn't weigh different field goals differently, right? So like, yes, if you shoot better on twos, your true shooting percentage is going to go up. But if you shoot better, like if you start shooting more threes, your field goal percentage might go down, but the actual points you're scoring on those shots uh, might go up. I do think that um, that kind of uh, covariance is prominent. And I think it's something that I, I actually... I was trying to come up with like an estimated wins metric recently. Oh, and what no. I did was I pulled a lot of the advanced things. So like box plus minus uh, PIPM, RAPM, all that stuff. And to try to make sure I wasn't double counting, I ran a correlation matrix for those to kind of see like, okay, you know, um, what was the, there was one that stood out. There's one called EPM, which lines up like really closely with BBPM, which is something Ben Taylor of thinking basketball does. So in my head right away, I'm like, okay, these, cause not all these things publish what's going into them. Um, so you don't know it like RPM at ESPN is kind of a black box. We don't really know. Uh, so, you know, if RPM were to heavily correlate with something, I'd want to know that so that I can, um, you know, make sure I'm not double counting, whatever that is, whether that's like, like box plus minus was updated this year. But before that we knew that, Hey, uh, if you have a point guard who defensive rebounds really well, they're going to be overrated by box plus minus. And, you know, maybe the center deserves more credit for the box outs or something like that. Um, so that's definitely a thing. I don't know that true shooting percentage is the um, best example of it. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing you might say, I guess, is this is tough, especially coming off a year where the Raptors ranked 22nd in defensive rebounding percentage. Um, defensive rebounding is very important at a team level, but I don't know that the way we look at it with like just defensive rebounds per game captures it the best like like when OGN and OB switched over to center at times in the relaunch suddenly he's grabbing all these defensive rebounds and it wasn't that OGN and OB was suddenly a much better defensive rebounder it was that his defensive role was having him closer to the rim so um I think I just think there are a couple things like that where we need to keep context in mind watch the game not the box score uh, Blake, what's I mean, on you got to do both, man. The people who do these analytics, like these advanced metrics, they all watch more basketball than anyone I know. It's just, you can't, I can't watch all 30 teams play 82 games. And even if I could, I don't know that I can pick up everything that's going on with all 10 guys at all, at all times, you know, like I, I rewatch every Raptors game because even in real time, as I'm taking my stupid little notes, I'm going to miss things or I'm going to need to go back and check things. So I think, 
you know, that's obviously we, we should all be past the analytics versus eye test conversations. Like they're stupid, they're reductive. And if anyone is having them, it's just a giant red flag that you're not listening um, because those two things go very much together. And it's, you know, you use one to help guide what you're looking at with the other and vice versa. So, um, you know, don't be scared of that stuff. All right, Blake, uh, small, quick questions. What's on your Spotify playlist right now? Ooh, uh, the two things that I've been listening to most these last couple of weeks, uh, Touche Amore have a new album out uh, that's really good, especially the, the album is called Lament, but there's a song on it called Fane that I really like. Uh, they're a bit more like of a yelly uh, emo band. And then Julian Baker has a new song on. Julian Baker is uh, just like the queen of sadness. And on a rainy fall day like this one, uh, it's perfect, perfect mood setting. And finally, if you, other than the athletic, if you had to, uh, if you had to get a subscription for a website, like what's your, what's your, what's your favorite subscription other than athletic? Hmm. Um, Actually, why would he have an athletic subscription? He works there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I get it free. Um, Well, no, the Columbia house party, Patreon, obviously the, my music podcast. No, I think um, the one I probably get the most use out of is cleaning the glass. Um, The thing that they do that I find super valuable is they take all of these stats like, you know, they don't use true shooting percentage, but stats like true shooting percentage or rebounding percentage or whatever, um, or on off stuff. And what that site does is beside each stat, there's a color coded um, percentage that lets you know, where does this rank among guys like him? So if you look at Pascal Siakam's usage percentage, that's not just a number there that says 28% that has no context. It also shows you hey, that's 89th percentile among forwards. So there are only, you know, 10% of forwards who carry a bigger offensive load than Siakam. So I find that super useful at cleaning the glass. A couple other ones would be wins added, which uh, Jacob Goldstein, who runs that, has this really cool tool right now that you can punch in a player's name and it shows you like a four-year projection for them. Uh, And you can change like their usage or their minutes and it shows you how the projection changes. I actually think that tool is outside the paywall, but there's also some stuff that he has there um, behind the paywall, especially if you're an international basketball fan. Uh, So those are the big two. I also, on the baseball side, I support fan graphs uh, because they do a lot of this same kind of stuff on the baseball side. And I used to write there. So I want to support them as well. All that talking and only one sip of water. If you guys noticed, if you're paying attention to that one, Blake, thanks for joining man. And uh, see you soon. Thanks buddy.